this evening in our study of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, the oldest Baptist confession that we have in existence, to chapter 4, to the subject of creation. I want you to open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In verses 1 through 3 we read, In the beginning was the Word... I'll get it for you, Tommy. In the beginning was the Word, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let us read verse 3 again. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I am sure that the average churchgoer who professes to be a Christian considers the doctrine of creation with some indifference, taking the general attitude, well, what difference does it make? Whether a man believes that the world is the direct creation of God, or whether the world has always been, or whether it has come to its present form through a long process of evolution. However, the more we are engaged in the study of the Bible and an examination of the doctrines of the Christian faith, the more aware we become of the fact that the doctrine of creation is basic to the whole of the Christian religion. The Bible begins with a statement, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is where divine revelation begins. And when we come to the close of the book of Revelation, the close of divine revelation, we find in the Apocalypse that all of creation has come to its fulfillment and glory in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. A part of that song that will be sung throughout all eternity is the song of redemption and the song of creation, for the two cannot be separated. It does make a difference what you believe about the doctrine of creation. Without this doctrine as set forth in the Bible, the whole plan of redemption is undermined and the Christian religion becomes merely another religion in the maze of religions and a mere part of the evolutionary development in man's upward reach, wherein he comes into the consciousness of a God and some expression of worship toward that which is the unknown. There is no doubt about it. If we are to be Christian, we must defend the doctrine of creation. If we allow compromise on the doctrine of creation, we have already compromised the foundation to the superstructure of our Christian faith. So it is only becoming and natural that in the confession of faith, having considered first of all the subject of Holy Scripture as being the Word of God, and secondly of God himself as Holy Trinity, and then the subject of God's decree or eternal plan and purpose that we now turn our attention to the subject of creation. From chapter 4, section 1 of the Confession of Faith, we may note that creation is the work of the triune God. In other words, creation is the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We read in section 1 of the Confession, quote, 
In the beginning it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. Now that is the statement of our faith. That is the statement that our Baptist churches subscribed to as our faith uh, when we were first beginning to associate ourselves in the early founding of this country in the early 1700s. Now let's take section 1 of chapter 4 and note two or three things. First of all, if, as herein stated, the world was created by God, then it cannot be self-existent or eternal. Now let me give you that statement again. If the world is created by God, as herein stated, it cannot be self-existent or eternal. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, in the beginning, whenever you want to put that, however far your imagination could carry you back in the beginning, God created. God created. The word translated created means to cause to be. With reference to the doctrine of creation, we speak of this as creation ex nihilo. This means creation out of nothing. A better statement would be creation out of none pre-existing materials. For we know that creation did come out of the purpose of God. Creation did come out of the power of God. Creation did come out of the wisdom of God. But creation did not result from God using any materials that existed prior to the time of his making all things. This statement is diametrically opposed to the teachings of modern scientism. Now you will note I have used the word scientism rather than the word science. For the word science, meaning knowledge, primarily knowledge that has been gained by observation and uh, orderly systematizing that which has been observed, does not stand in contradiction to the teachings of the Word of God. But scientism, which is a religious committal of faith, that is fallen into by many who claim to be scientists, teach that which is contrary to the teachings of the Word of God. So those in the field of science today, unless they be creationists, teach, number one, that the universe is self-existent. In other words, it has generated itself into being. And so they are shut up to believe that the universe being self-existent is eternal, that matter is eternal. Now, if matter is eternal, this places matter on a par with God. As you know, one of the first platforms of faith in the communist religion is the eternality of matter. And so once a person accepts evolution, he becomes ripe for being brainwashed into liberalism, socialism, and communism because evolution is necessary to the existence of these isms. In the second place, modern science holds that the universe does not have a derived substance. In other words, whatever is out there in the universe, 
according to evolutionary scientism, that which is out there has not been derived from something outside of itself. Oh, that which is out there may change forms and fashion itself into different things, but nevertheless, that which is basically substance has always been there. So this is a denial of the world having been created out of none pre-existing materials. In this framework, God, if he is recognized at all, is seen to be nothing more than that force within the universe that has fashioned the materials already in existence into their present existing forms. So God becomes the mysterious force or the mysterious movement within the universe of energy and power and matter. You can rest assured that this God is not the God of the Bible. So no matter how much the evolutionary scientist speaks about God, he is not speaking of the God of our Christian faith. In the third place, modern evolutionary scientism teaches that the present form of the world is the result from the process of selection controlled not by God, but by the survival of the fittest. And so through this long process of struggle and conflict, through the survival of the fittest, we have the selection of that which exists today. And then finally, modern evolutionary science teaches that there is no ultimate reason or plan for anything that is within creation and nature itself other than that which is imposed upon it by the will of man. Therefore, we are living within a chance universe, a universe without purpose a universe without meaning other than as man, through his experimentation, is able to impose some control upon the universe in which we live. And so we have the general platform of modern evolutionary science. However, in opposition to this, the scriptures teach, and it is expressed in the confession of faith, that God in Trinity created the universe, that the worlds which are result from his will, and so all that is derives its existence from him. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, the apostle Paul expresses this in speaking of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 16, where he says, For by him, that is, by the Lord Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist or hold together or keep from flying apart. Now we may note from section one of the confession that God has created the world as a manifestation of his own glory. Let me read to you again the statement. In the beginning it pleased God in Trinity for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create the world. So creation is a manifestation of the glory of God. Turn, please, to the book of Romans chapter 1, where this is further brought out in verses 19 through 23. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 19, 
because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. That is, every man has a sense of the divine. Every man is born into the world knowing that there is a God. You need not teach men there is a God. You must labor to teach them that there is no God. For men by nature cannot be atheists. And men by nature have a witness within themselves that God is. They just don't like that God they are confronted with. Then we read, For God hath showed it unto them, which means that man not only has an inward sense of the divine, as John Calvin called it, but there is an outward witness in the universe itself of the nature of God, of the existence of God, which men by nature don't like to see. In verse 20, For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. That is, the invisible attributes of God, which we cannot see with these eyes, are clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, those who deny God, are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image, made like unto corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. From this passage of Scripture, we see that as a result of creation, all men everywhere, no matter how backward their conditions might be, all men everywhere are confronted with the testimony of God. All men everywhere have a revelation of God. But men don't like this revelation of God. They don't like the footprints of God that they see within God's universe. Because they are sinners in rebellion against God, they suppress that truth of God by holding it down in unrighteousness. So, as a result of this, men refuse to acknowledge God as the world's creator. This is the first step in the overt evidence of man's rebellion against God. He sees the evidence of God in creation, and he seeks to change what he knows of God into an image after the finite creature, and so denies that God is the creator. However, in spite of this, the world continues to show God's wisdom, his goodness, and his power. Man cannot think of this universe without thinking of some vast power that stands behind it. Man cannot see the intricacies of the makeup of the universe without seeing the evidence of wisdom. And man cannot study himself without seeing some evidence of goodness in the overall makeup of creation. But we can present these things to unbelievers until we are breathless, and they will continue to refuse to see the evidence of God in God's creation. They do not want the knowledge of God. Now, there is no contradiction between what is revealed in nature and what is revealed in the Bible. God is the author of both. And he who has written the book of nature has not written contrarily in the book of life, which is the Word of God. Any conflict that exists between science, and I put that in quotes, and the Christian religion is a contradiction that exists in the rebellious minds of men 
who refuse to read the book of nature aright. Now, the only way that God's nature can be read aright is through the spectacles of Holy Scripture. So when men deny the God of the Bible as their presupposition, when men deny the Bible as being the Word of God as their presupposition, they are going to seek in their rebellion to create conflict between the God of the Bible and what they read in nature all because of their rebellion. There's one thing that you need to remember, especially you that have been exposed to the teachings of evolution in high school and the first few years of college as if it were a proved fact. Evolution is a religious presupposition that men accept by faith. There's no way in the world that any man can observe the evolutionary process that he claims to believe in. There is no way in the world that man can prove the evolutionary process that he claims to believe in. Therefore, just as I, a Christian, accept by faith the God of the Bible without proof, and the Bible to be the Word of God, so one who accepts evolution must first of all accept evolution as a faith presupposition and then through circular reasoning try to establish enough evidence to make it plausible uh, and therefore something worthy of believing. So, dear friends, evolution is not science. Evolution is a religious commitment. Dr. Harold Slusher, who preached for us a few weeks ago, who is the professor of geophysics at the University of Texas, and who is the director of the Kidd Memorial Seismic Observatory in the field of astronomy in the state of Texas pointed out to us emphatically that as a scientist he could tell us that any person who believes in evolution believes in it as a religious faith and not as a scientific fact. That as a scientist he did not believe in it, could not believe in it, because it cannot be proved in the laboratory. Furthermore, we know that Dr. Henry Morris, who for many years was head of the Department of Civil Engineering at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute, has written many outstanding books from the viewpoint of a scientist disproving evolution, showing that it is a religious commitment and that what the Bible teaches is far more scientific and plausible to be believed. Now, we may note further that it is stated in our confession of faith that this, for the glory of God, this creation was in the space of six days and all very good. Now, of course, what the confession has reference to there is the six-day account following verse 3, or beginning with verse 3 in Genesis chapter 1. Now, personally, I do not believe that the world is millions of years old. The world could be 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 years of age. We don't have any way of knowing. And the more scientists now are delving into the method of carbon dating, the more unreliable they're discovering that even that so-called scientific method of dating is, because you always have to allow them anywhere from 50 to 100 million years, one way or the other, to be in error. Now, you start allowing a man 100 million years to be in error to play around with, and that's a pretty big ball field to chase a ball about in. Now, we have reason to believe that our universe is relatively young. But 
in spite of this, this does not disallow that there could have been in Genesis 1-1 an original creation. In Genesis 1-2 a fall, and in Genesis 1-3 following a six-day restoration. My own personal conviction is that God first created the heavens and the earth. Then he created the angels and put them under the headship of Lucifer. And in a very short period of time, Lucifer rebelled against God and in his fall became the devil. God flooded the earth, destroyed any remains or semblance of that former civilization. And then after a period of time, recreated the world for man to inhabit it, as we find recorded in Genesis 1, verses 3, to the end of the chapter. So the chapter would be divided in generation, God creating, degeneration, Lucifer's fall, regeneration, God bringing the world back into a habitable form. Now, it is not necessary to look for ice ages and geological timetables in that period between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, because there's nothing left of that former creation for us to observe. Furthermore, we know that if there were any ice ages from the point of the Bible, and it's very doubtful that there were any extended ice ages, but if there were any ice ages, uh, from the point of the Bible, it happened during the time of the flood, when there uh, came a drastic change of temperature uh, as a result of the removal of the water canopy that was around the earth. Furthermore, we know that it was during the time of the flood that the fossils were deposited in the earth and so laid down uh, for us to observe at this time. Now, you know the geological timetable says that the simplest form of life, therefore the simplest fossil, being here first must be on the bottom, and the more complex uh, fossil must be at the top. And so if we can get this strata, and we can't find any strata deep enough uh, to really study a geological timetable, because that timetable would be over 70 miles in uh, depth, and the crust of the earth is only 25 miles in depth. Uh, but we can't find any to begin with. But it's awfully frustrating well, whenever uh, the geologists turn up, as they did out in the West, a fossiled trilobite. Now, trilobite is supposed to be way down on the very bottom of the geological timetable. But on top of this fossiled trilobite, or there were three trilobites, was also a man's footprint that had become petrified, and he was wearing a sandal, and he was stepping on those three trilobites. Now, most scientists won't even look at that fossil. They won't look at it because they say they've already made up their mind in prejudice, so they say it's impossible that a man could have been wearing sandals and could have stepped on a trilobite. But I'll tell you that anything in the form of a fossil from a trilobite on up to a man has existed since God created the earth. You say, well, what about the fossils? Don't they prove the world is millions of years old? No. Not unless you start out with the presupposition that it would have taken millions of years for a trilobite to work its way up the scale to becoming a man. And so then you draw up your imaginary timetable and say, oh yes, here is the proof of uh, evolution and the millions of years. First of all, fossils, if they prove anything, prove that there had to be cataclysmic convulsions on the earth, which we know to have been God's intervention in judgment in the flood. Because if an animal dies out on the side of the road there and is not suddenly buried and brought under tremendous temperatures and pressures, what will happen to that animal? It'll rot if the buzzards don't eat it, and pretty soon there won't be any trace 
whatsoever. In order to have a fossil, you've got to have a sudden burial under tremendous pressure and heat that causes that thing to petrify. And that which did that was the flood when the world went into a fit and had its convulsion as the result of God's judgment upon it. Gradually died and then have been laid aside. I have a picture at home, and some of you might uh, have this picture in Dr. Morris's book on the flood, of two footprints that were taken right down here in South Texas in a riverbed. And one of the footprints was of a dinosaur, and walking right beside that dinosaur was the footprint of a man, and the size of his foot was 18 inches long, which meant that he was a giant too. I've often said it was probably a giant, as recorded in the book of Genesis chapter 6, prior to the time of the flood, walking along with his pet dog by the name of Dinosaur. And when the flood came, they were suddenly wiped out and buried, and it preserved their feet. Now, geologists have a lot of trouble with that fossil as well, an 18-inch foot petrified there in a riverbed right beside it, a dinosaur, and the dinosaur track no bigger than the man's foot. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, there were giants in the land, giant animals as well as giant men who were swept away at the time of the flood. You say, well, why don't we have dinosaurs now? Because Noah didn't take any of the big blundersome things into the ark, that's why. All Noah did was to take a a specimen of everything that existed, and we have many little, small-sized reptiles today that are from the dinosaur family. He just took smaller sizes in with it. And those that were left were destroyed in the flood, and if he did take one of the big blundersome things sliming into the ark with him, it would have perished shortly afterwards because of the lack of vegetation, because vegetation had been buried and swept away as a result of the flood. Well, you say, well, what about the apparent age of the earth? It looks old, and men say that it is old. Now, you know our space project would be a tremendous thing to the glory of God if it were not set up for one thing, and that is seeking to prove evolution. But my, how disappointed the scientists were when our, our, our astronauts landed on the moon and didn't go down 25 feet or so into dust. There was just a very little bit of dust on the surface of the moon showing that it wasn't very old. But you say the earth looks old. Well, naturally it looks old because there was no way in the world that God could have created the world without having created age into the world at the same time. In other words, if God had just created the world and it was a day old and you and I suddenly came upon it and we looked at it, we would scratch our heads and say, My, I wonder how long this has been here. Now, one thing you have to remember is that nothing you have ever seen is like anything that was when God created it. For example, when God created the world, we have no reason to believe that there were any mountains. When God created the world, we have no reason to believe that there were any deep seas or oceans. The land was relatively flat. The ocean bases were relatively shallow. The mountains were formed during the convulsion and the fit that the world had when God flipped it over in the time of the flood and has formed the ocean bases as well. So you and I have never seen the world as it was when Adam saw it. We've never seen the world as Noah saw it before he went into that ark. And my, how different it must have been when he came out of that ark. But if we had looked at the world, we would have had no idea how old it was. It would be just like someone coming into this church looking at that organ. They would look at that organ and, and inspect it and observe it. They would have no idea of telling how old it was. Now, if they had knowledge of electronic science, they would know that it couldn't be but so old. But nevertheless, they would know whether it was a year old, ten years old, or six months old. 
because it has the appearance of age on it. And so it is with the world. Well, let me give you a better illustration. Let's suppose that when God created Adam, you and I were standing behind a palm tree somewhere. And we stepped out from behind that palm tree, and there stood Adam. Blue-eyed, blonde-haired, ruddy complexion, almost as red-skinned as Donald Davidson over there. Because the word Adam, you know, is taken from the Hebrew word Adama, means red, means he's made out of red clay. He was so white, he was red. And there stood Adam. Now, was he a little baby crying? No, he was standing there, full-grown man. Now, that's the first time we've seen Adam. We look at him. We say, Adam, how old are you? About 30 years old? No. Let me see. And he looks at his new Accutron watch, and he says, why? He says, I'm only five minutes and seven seconds old. That's impossible, we'd say. You cannot be just five minutes and seven seconds old because you look like a a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, ruddy-complexioned man 30 years old. But Adam would look back and say, but that's the way I was created. God brought me into being full-grown. He brought me into being as a man. And so Adam had the appearance of age upon him when God created And so did the earth. Why? Because the earth was perfect. It was complete. It was complete in every form. And so being perfect and complete, there was light between the earth and all of the stars and the sun and the planet. And so, there was the appearance of age. So men cannot stand back and look at the earth. They cannot stand back and look at rocks and the weathering of those rocks and measure the degree of weathering now in the process of rain, wind, sun, heat, and freezing and say it takes this long for it to weather and it's weathered so many inches so the earth's got to be so old. Because God created it with a full appearance of age, and then he speeded up the process of weathering during the time of the flood. Oh, no. The earth is not millions of years old. It had a beginning. It was created by God. But now let us note in closing that our confession of faith says in particular God created not only the universe, not only the world and all things in it, but man in his own image. In chapter 4, section 2, we read, After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female. Now, did you note that? Man, singular, male and female. You know what he named, you know what he named man, male and female, when he first created them? He named them Adam. The woman's name was Adam, and the man's name was Adam. He created man, and he created woman. And he named them man, because Adam means man. It was Adam who named her Eve, and that after the fall. So she was Adam, and he was Adam. After God made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgression, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Now we have the history of creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. What we have in Genesis 2 is not a contradiction of Genesis 1, nor does Genesis chapter 2 prove that it was written by a different author than Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we have an overall survey of the totality of creation as it pertains to this earth. Then in chapter 2, Moses backs up under inspiration of God and gives the details on how God created man in particular. So there is no contradiction. Now, I want you to note that man was God's crowning work of creation. Man did not emerge from a lower form of life into a higher and more intelligent form. 
You say, but what about the cave man? Well, let me ask you the question, what about the cave man? Have you ever seen a cave man? You say, well, no. Well, I have. I'll tell you right now, if our civilization continues and then we get suddenly wiped out in a war or a storm or a fire or a flood, and somebody goes in and digs up the remains of our hippie civilization that's developing, they'll swear uh, that the United States of America was inhabited by cavemen. By some of these things running around today, look, they look exactly what some people have visualized the cavemen to look like. Well, I've seen cavemen. When this church sent me over to Europe, when I was down in Spain preaching, I went into a little village down in Spain where we have built a church. And down in that village were some cave people. Their homes were caves. They had dug caves out in the earth, and they lived in those caves. But what about the cave man? Well, first of all, the cave man, if he did exist, was a degeneration of created man. In other words, rather than the caveman proving that man emerged from a lower form of, of life into a higher and more intelligent form, proves, on the other hand, that man could have started out created in the image of God and fell down to that level because of sin and rebellion. But actually, you know, when it comes to the subject of the caveman, largely he is the imagination of certain persons who need him in the evolutionary scale. Because none of these, quote, experts and, quote, expertise have ever seen cavemen either. So they have dug up a jawbone of a, of a gorilla here and a jawbone of a man in this part of the country and a jawbone of a man in that part of the country and then they have taken little flakes of bones that you and I would be called fools for working with and in their imagination they have drawn out pictures what they felt man looked like when he had a big jaw and then he got to eating sulfur food and got a big head. But primarily the caveman is a figment of the imagination. They talk about the missing link. Where is he? It seems that in all of these millions of years that man has been climbing upward, becoming intelligent, falling downward out of the trees, that we'd find one of these missing links hanging around somewhere, or at least backed up against the tree rubbing his tail off. But we don't find it. And so our scientists, quote, come along with a very convenient explanation. They say, oh, but that only happened one time. In other words, a lower form of life only one time made the jump into a higher form of intelligent life that we call homo sapien. Isn't that convenient? How do they know it only happened one time? If they guessed that it happened one time, why not guess that it just didn't happen at all? It isn't it convenient that intelligent PhDs who are proving more and more that they're monkeys, trying to make monkeys out of us, come along and say, oh, but we, we only had that process of change one time and it's not being repeated and that's why we don't see any missing links or the go-betweens today. Tommy Rot. If there had ever been a blind chance, unintelligent, evolutionary process set to work in the world, it'd be going on right now. And man would be changing into something. And the Lord knows he's not changing into something better. He's changing, all right, but it's to the worst. In other words, the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, is operative today in the morals of men as well as it is with reference to the natural creation and the matter of energy. Oh, my. The same PhDs 
swinging in their trees like monkeys who want to be monkeys worse than the world can imagine, come along and say, well, now, we do admit that when we look at the fossil record, there are tremendous gaps in between the fossils, and we can't fill in these empty spaces, but those those fill-ins must be somewhere. But where could they be? Maybe they uh, got a little ahead of themselves and built a spaceship and went off to Mars. Who knows? But believing the Bible, we expect there to be tremendous gaps between the fossils. On the one hand, we expect similarities because all things were created by the same God. But on the other hand, we expect there to be such differences that there are gaps, that there, there is no way that men can tie these varieties together. Oh, no. No man was created by God. And the whole human race descended from one human pair. Did you know the scientists, and I put them in quotes again, are now admitting that? They're saying, oh yes, we now agree that the human race really did descend from one human pair. Now we say Adam and Eve, they say, oh no, it, it's, it was from uh, some human pair that emerged uh, up from an ape-like creature. Now, isn't it strange that these scientists who will reject the Bible's teaching on the creation of Adam and Eve will tell us that that original pair came into being like this. That only one time in the history of the billions of years of the world's development, only one time, one creature transformed into a man and another creature transformed into a woman, just one time. And at that one time, it just so happened that out of all of those billions of years, that one man happened to have changed into a man at the very same time that woman was transformed into a woman. And then they tell us that in all of these billions of years, by mere chance, it just happened that at that one time when some lower form transformed into a man and into a woman, that they happened to have transformed into a man and a woman at the very same place. So that at that one time, by mere chance, out of all of these billions of years, they might live with one another and produce an offspring. And then they talk about, we're fools for believing the Bible. Brother, it takes an awful lot of religion and the stretch of the imagination to believe that. But my dear friends, that's exactly what evolutionists are teaching today. I'm dramatizing it, of course. But isn't it convenient that this happened once and has never been repeated, that it happened at the same time that a man and a woman came into being at the same place and they were attracted to one another rather than eating one another and produced the human race. My, what a religion. And they call that science. They call that education. They call that being learned. Well, I'll just stay with the Bible where it says that God created man and he created woman and he created man after his own image. Now that image is spelled out for us, says that he created man in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. This means that God created man a tri-personality. God is Trinity. Man was created body, soul, and spirit. It says that God made man's body out of the dust of the earth. There's his body. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. There is the Spirit, and he became a living soul. Man is a living soul, living in a body with a spirit. Also, this knowledge, this righteousness, and this holiness means that God created man in knowledge to be his prophet, in holiness to be his priest, in righteousness to be his king. As a prophet, man was to learn of God's creation, 
and so interpret all of God's created facts about the world. As priest in holiness, man was to bring the world in worship before God, and as king in righteousness, he was to have dominion over the earth. There's nothing wrong with man investigating, searching, experimenting, exploring. The only thing wrong is his motive. If man would seek to learn for the glory of God and to bring creation under God's authority, how much more would God bless man's endeavors in the field of science, in the field of education, than he now blesses? And how much more of God's universe would we have the privilege of knowing? And so we have the Confession's statement on the creation of the universe and of man. Though written in 1689, it is as up-to-date today as the day when it was adopted first by the Baptists in England and then by the Baptists in the colonies. Our Father, we pray that thy Spirit will bless this, thy word, to our hearts and understandings. We do marvel at thy word, but we marvel even more so at that which is called the field and endeavor of intelligence in the realm of human speculation. My, how true is thy word, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools when they turn aside from the teachings of Holy Scripture. What an imagination this sinful creature has, O Lord, and how thou hast allowed him to play with it, as he has denied thee to be the creator of all things. But we do thank thee that thou hast created the world and all things therein. And we do thank thee that our hope is in thee, for knowing that if thou hast created us, though we have sinned against thee, we have the hope of salvation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.